Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week, Miranda Warnings is recorded at the New York State Bar Association's Tech Summit. And today we have the Honorable Lisa Margaret Smith, Magistrate Judge for the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, located in White Plains. Welcome, Judge Smith. Hello. We also have with us today Ignatius Grande of Berkeley Research Group. Thanks, David. Welcome, Ignatius. Uh, we're going to talk today about the use of technology in litigation, uh, some of the issues that arise when we have uh, technology like Amazon's Alexa and Apple's Siri testify in court. Uh, so, Judge Smith, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing as far as the type of proof that uh, is being brought in on with respect to technology like this. Thus far, the kinds of technology that we see is fairly typical. Emails, text messages, um, and of course, uh, information stored on a computer. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's fairly clear that we're going to be moving into things like recordings from Siri, from Alexa, from uh, any of those kinds of personal assistance, as well as things like Fitbits and uh, Apple Watches, other kinds of personal assistants that may keep track of uh, your fitness, your movements, your actions, the kinds of information that your car creates when you travel. It not only identifies the length of each trip, but if you turn on Waze or Google Maps while you're, while you're driving, if it's linked to your car's computer system, it could identify exactly where you went. Now, in the past, I have occasionally seen things like Easy Pass records used to help identify where a driver was at a particular time to confirm whether they were where they reported having been. Right, of course, and we've seen uh, with Easy Pass, I think some of the prosecutions with respect to no-show jobs. Yes, uh, they had an Easy Pass, and it showed that they were in fact, uh, you know, driving somewhere else around the state when they were supposed to be. Uh, presumably employed somewhere else. And in divorce proceedings where uh, one spouse claimed to have been working late regularly and Easy Pass showed that they were in fact halfway home getting off at the location where their lover's house was uh, and then coming home much later than that. So it, it's potentially relevant in lots of circumstances. Um, but there are some real considerations. There are constitutional concerns, especially if we're talking about a criminal case. If it's a criminal case, for example, having to do with a no-show job, right. um, you can't just try to get the recordings from Alexa or Siri uh, because you think it 
might have relevant information. You have to have more of a probability. Otherwise, it is, as everyone likes to argue to me, a fishing expedition um, without having a sufficient likelihood of containing relevant information. Well, well, let's break that down a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the the criminal aspect of it. So we've got the Fourth Amendment uh, right against unreasonable searches, and we've got the Fifth Amendment right uh, against self-incrimination, uh, also known as uh, the the Miranda rights. Um, so, <laughs> Ignatius, uh, tell us a little bit and, about and some of the Sixth Amendment right to confrontation uh, of of witnesses. One of in one case. Uh, and I can't remember what state it was out of, there was uh, a request to use information from from the defendant's Fitbit. Right. And defense counsel argued that um, he could not cross-examine Fitbit and um, uh, the that the defendant should not have to justify the information on Fitbit. And because it was personal information and the court found it didn't violate his right to confrontation um, because he was not Fitbit. There was another case that uh, I've been told about where the the government wanted to get information from a defendant's heart monitor, heart pacemaker um, uh, to to be able to use against him. Ignatius? Yeah, well, yes. Well, you know, all of those, I want to go into those a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about the the unreasonable search and the reasons why this some of this information might not be able to come in. Right. Well, with, with the unreasonable search, it, it's interesting. I think with, with uh, Alexa, oftentimes it's not that they're, you know, something, you, that information is not in the device so it, it's oftentimes more of a request from the, the company or a subpoena to get that information. And that, that's, I think, something that's changing a lot of the, this area of the law is the cloud. And oftentimes, you know, it used to be you would get a cell phone from a, a let's say, some a, a suspect, and there'd be information on the phone that, that you, you used to be able to break into the phone, which now is a lot more difficult. Um, but, but it, you know, now there's a lot in the cloud that, it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't really, a reasonable search doesn't always come up because you're really requesting it from the party and it has to do with the, the policies. But what could be more personal than this uh, little phone that I'm keeping on my person uh, that is traveling with me everywhere and pretty much knows everything that I've done, what I've eaten, uh, uh, who have I, who I've talked to? It's hard to think of something that could be a more personal invasion than access to this. Well, in criminal cases, it's very standard for law enforcement to seek a warrant to uh, access uh, the content of a phone. And these days, because of the difficulty of unlocking them, very often the warrant will contain a request that the law enforcement agency, upon seizing the phone, is entitled to cause the phone owner to access the phone with finger touch and or face recognition. Uh, so, and that has not been considered uh, a violation of the right not to be a witness against yourselves, and, yourself. And actually I have the language from, this is from an actual subpoena in the Michael Cohen case. 
uh, it said that it, like, it will likely be necessary to press the fingers of the user of the subject devices to the device's touch ID sensor or hold the subject devices in front of the user's face to activate the face ID sensor because since law enforcement didn't know the password to that device. And that was I, from the warrant uh, of Michael that, Cohen's. Of Michael Cohen, uh, President Trump's yes. personal now, lawyer. I think they, I, I wasn't ever, I don't think it was ever conclusive that they used his finger or had to, to but but that's, that is the information they're asking for him. Another area which comes up is, is whether someone has, is deceased. And there, you know, there have been articles about law enforcement using the, you know, the, if it's let's say it was a suspect that was murdered tr trying to use the finger to open the device but that that can be tricky i think once a body is is dead that that the fingerprint no longer works but i think that um for the most part these kinds of companies whether we're talking about verizon or at&t or t-mobile or facebook or uh, amazon or google they um resist strongly being the source of production. Right. Uh, they would want law enforcement to get the information directly from um, the phone. And on the criminal side, it can be used as an investigative tool before um, charges are brought, or even if the investigation continues after charges are brought, it can be used investigatively in a way that's different from trying to get discovery in a civil case. In order to get information like this in a civil case, no matter what it is, whether it's matrimonial or uh, a personal injury case where somebody's claiming that before the accident they ran marathons and after the accident they could barely get out of bed in the morning, uh, there has to be a significant likelihood that the information that's being sought by that discovery would in fact be both available and relevant um, uh, and, and to that end that it would be the device or the information would be likely to have information relevant to the issues in the case. And, and just one other thing, you talked about sure, the Fifth go. Amendment earlier. So it, it is interesting with the this whole the thumbprints because I, I you know now it is very customary to use your thumbprint to, to access your phone, but you know there is the question: Is that a violation of the Fifth Amendment to have a search warrant or require someone to use their thumbprint? Um, and it really hasn't been. There's cases that go both ways. I think the argument has predominantly been made that this is very much like. Um, allowing a defendant's photograph to be taken so that it can be placed in a photo array for uh, a, a, a victim or a witness to identify the person um, or to stand in a lineup for the same reason or also to uh, take a hair sample or a blood sample or a skin sample, a DNA swab. All of those things have been litigated and it has found not to violate the Fifth Amendment. So at least in so far as a thumbprint, fingerprint, or facial uh, appearances, I don't think that's gonna be problematic in terms of the Fifth Amendment. On the other hand, if there was an effort to require the person to provide a password, that seems to me to, to go past the line and would be 
prob- uh, problematic under the Fifth Amendment. So blood, hair, uh, not a problem. Fingerprints. Password, that's off limits, right? <laughs> you know, it'll be interesting. You know, I think it, it is, a, you know, I mean, it goes to, I think, something Justice Roberts said a couple of years ago about technology having more of an impact even in Supreme Court cases and whether th- these sort of issues do make it up at some point. You know, I, I think, you know, it tends to the Supreme Court tends not to want to deal with technology, but I mean, they, they really have no choice with the way these issues are, are coming up. It, it's, I mean, talking about it that way, I mean, what, what is a person's rights? Because, I mean, you think about it, a thumbprint really is that much, di- is that much different than, it's the same thing as giving them your password, really. I really think the Supreme Court moved forward leaps and bounds a number of years ago when there had been a case involving a, a, a chase of a suspect, a car chase of a suspect, and there was dashboard a dashboard camera in the officer's car, and Justice Scalia attached the video of that chase to the opinion so that anyone reading the opinion could watch the video that the members of the court had watched. Uh, and that is a huge change and really a leap forward for the court. So, you know, we have this technology like Amazon's Alexa and Apple's Siri that record everything uh, that is being, uh, being said. Um, can Alexa and Siri, can they testify in court? Well, that's the issue. Um, it, obviously, they are not uh, sentient beings, and they can't be sworn, but the appropriate method, I think, again, this hasn't been litigated to the best of my knowledge, but under the rules, the appropriate method is to use uh, rule 902 subsection 13 or 14 um, to get a certification from the source, Apple or Google or whoever the owner is. Um, The certification has to um, uh, uh, affirm that the record that was generated by the electronic process or system produces an accurate result. Uh, and it does require that there must be advance notice given to so the who's adverse get, party. So who's getting, who's providing that certification? I Apple? think it would have to be Apple or Siri, and, and yet I believe they have resisted. I mean, how do they know if it's being recorded accurately, right? I mean... Uh, it's the system. Oftentimes, that I mean, I've asked you, you've, I've asked Siri a question, and there, you know, the answer is uh, completely unrelated to something else. Obviously, misheard me, um, and so I wouldn't want to have in a legal proceeding. I wouldn't want to have to rely on their interpretation of someone's you know, voice recognition. I think the certification would be separate and apart from any given recording. Uh, They wouldn't be saying these words on this recording are accurate. They would be saying this system and process that is used produces an accurately recorded result. What about the situation where you know, presumably it's recording, whether it be a Fitbit or, or Siri, it's being recorded uh, as it's happening. Uh, but what about a situation where someone might be trying to game the system? 
maybe they're trying to use, maybe they committed some sort of crime and they're trying to use sure. Siri or Alexa as a as a alibi. Sure. Somehow, so where you know it's certainly possible via technology to make it seem like you're talking in a room when you're could be a hundred miles away. Sure. What about you that? you might have a circumstance where uh, you were able to phone in to your residence or office or wherever you're purporting to be, have a voice come over the answering machine, perhaps, using the wake word to wake up Alexis from uh, from its dormant state and then talk to it um, and potentially do it in such a way that... um, by going back and selectively removing part of the recording, I don't know how how possible that is, but you could take out the part that shows that the phone was ringing. Oh, I for know example. it could be done very uh, quite cleanly. I mean, you have situations. I can get a phone call from someone, makes it looks like it's coming from someone I know, and in fact, it's just using a phantom account. Oh, sure. Um, and I'm certain that if uh, someone with a little bit of technical yep. expertise uh, could do that, and how do we, how, you know, the this the, is, the, uh, the point though is. Like any evidence, it's going to be subject to analysis, refutation. Um, uh, Presumably, if there was evidence that the person was at some other location committing some crime, uh, then there may be an opportunity to investigate the circumstances of Alexa or Siri are you seeing recording in the courtroom where their experts are coming in to validate uh, certain uh, technological the, information. This is not yet run of the mill. I'm not seeing it. I haven't even seen it in terms of discovery demands, but I think it's it's on the horizon for sure. And we can see- particularly as as lawyers and and uh, parties to a case become more aware of what kind of information would be contained therein. And I think we could see it in, in more mundane civil actions, even not the, you know, murder necessarily, but uh, someone was involved in a personal injury accident. Um, information that they post on Facebook, for example, information that they post in their Fitbit account sure. uh, would all be very relevant to their level of ability. This, though, is just another form of that type of evidence. I remember many years ago, one of my colleagues was holding a trial in which uh, a person was claiming to have been injured so that uh, there was a significant back injury and was unable to participate in the activities of his daily life. And they showed a video that had been taken from a wedding he went to where he was dancing up a storm. Uh, So it's just kind of the same sort of evidence just expanded into a new electronic uh, area. And what about the expectation of privacy that someone might have? That's going to be the subject of litigation without question, particularly, for example, if you bring the personal device into your home and it records 
your child or your guest? Are you going to be giving a consent form to every guest before they walk into your house? Some states, not New York, but some states require that you cannot record a conversation without the express permission from everyone involved in that conversation. But I dare to say you're not going to put a consent form on the front table inside your front door to make sure everybody signs and consents. And then I guess you turn it off if they refuse to consent. Yeah, but what if I was recording this conversation right now and then decided to broadcast it? Well, and you how, are. How would you feel? <laughs> it, it, the, the privacy concerns are serious ones um, and have not yet been parsed out. And, you know, when we're, you, you talked about a guest in someone's home, when you're talking about, you know, some of these devices that go on automatically, um, you know, the host of the home might not even know that it's, yes. it's going on. So you, there would be no real basis for 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 providing a you know waiver or authorization right but so who's responsible for that in some places it's it's illegal to record somebody's uh conversation without them uh knowing it um who's responsible for that it was unknowing on behalf of the host would the host be responsible for that or uh, it's elect, or completely Amazon? difficult to know yeah completely so difficult but, but to that know. would seem to be it could on in some instances be very valuable evidence in uh, litigation uh, or a criminal proceeding uh, to go into the mix. Could be right? very, very valuable. Um, I think particularly in criminal cases, someone breaks into your home, you could have a, a smart doorbell that has the camera and videos the person entering the home, and then it just happens that they say something that's picked up by the personal assistant and wakes it up so that it the uh, ransacking of the home and the voices of those involved are being recorded. Now, that I don't think is going to present a confrontation clause issue right. um, or a, um, a Fifth Amendment concern because it is the crime. It right. is the corpus of the crime. And so it's going to be admissible very likely. Right. And things are very different now because just, just about everything that's done is recorded. You could walk down the street. Uh, and be recorded, especially here in New York City. Right. Uh, you know, and you're able to piece together uh, who's who's coming, who's going. For example, I know in the uh, the the murder of Khashoggi, um, they showed who was entering the building. They they showed Khashoggi entering, and they showed these other uh, people entering, and then they left. Khashoggi never left, uh, and so. You know, there was some conclusive evidence there that uh, was able to be used to rebut some uh, factually incorrect statements that were made. Right. And so we have that all the time when there's a crime committed. You can see who's coming or going from a particular building. Yes. All that is uh, something that's uh, uh, something that's accessible. What, what I, I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts on on what we're seeing regarding the preservation of these recordings. Uh, obviously, some are within the party's control. Some are not within the party's control. Um, some might be deleted on a regular basis. Some might be deleted 
you know, surgically. Um, what are you seeing with respect to spoliation of some of this evidence that could be very incriminating and compelling? Well, as you know, attorneys have an ethical obligation to be adept in all of the things that um, uh, illuminate their practice and that come up in their practice. And so I think it's essential for counsel to recognize, counsel involved in litigation where there is discovery, um, to recognize that at the very outset, no matter which party they're representing, they need to tell their clients to preserve, and there's the standard, preserve everything on your laptop, preserve everything on your Facebook page, preserve your emails and your text messages. Um, that part is, is fairly typical, but I think now uh, it needs to go beyond that to say, make sure no one uh, erases anything off of Alexa. Um, make sure that if you have a uh, a security system on your home with a smart doorbell that's taking recordings that any relevant recordings during the appropriate time period are retained. And that would apply to all kinds of cases when it had to do with when a person was at a particular location. So let's say other kinds of smart, yeah, sure. smart information, um, your Fitbit, your Apple Watch, uh, your the GPS on your phone or in your car. You need to figure out a way to preserve it. And I think counsel that does very much of this kind of practice may have to uh, have someone in in their office who has the resources to help clients to preserve that information because not everyone is going to be capable of doing it. Right. It's going to take a few spoliation cases before your run-of-the-mill attorneys recognize the importance of this, I think. Let's say you have, you know, litigation, like a litigation hold letter where you say whatever you have that may potentially be relevant to this, whether you think it is or not, just hold on. You need to preserve it. Don't delete it. Don't delete any emails or texts or Facebook messages. And then... You go through the course of the trial and you gotta, you've got you've been asked in discovery to produce, let's say it's a personal injury matter, produce everything you have, you, you produce it. And, you know, you find out from the, from the client that, well, somewhere along the way they deleted, you know, six months worth of stuff. Uh, maybe it was deliberate, maybe it was accidental, maybe it was because they broke up with their girlfriend, they wanted to cut out everything that they did, but still there was a deletion that uh, was contrary to the litigation hold. What do you do? What do you do then as an attorney? Do you have to do you have to disclose that? Do you have to reveal that to the court and the other side? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. You have to tell the other side. You have to tell the court. Um, there will almost certainly be a spoliation motion. Now, since the amendments, the standard for a sanction is pretty high for spoliation. So it, unless it was intentional to prevent its use in the litigation, and unless you have some way of establishing that, it's unlikely that there would be much of a sanction. There may be a sanction such as this existed at one time, does not exist anymore, and that that has to be, the jury has to be informed of that fact, but without necessarily a presumption that it 
should be held against the client who did the spoliating. Some jurors would feel that way, but it's not going to be an instruction from the court in most instances. It would appear to be very incriminating, even if it was innocuous. Exactly. uh, When you're involved in a situation like that. Exactly. Uh, But I do think that in something like a preservation letter, counsel will be well served to include uh, not just keep your text messages, keep your emails, keep your voicemails, but also keep your uh, recordings from Alexis, keep your information from your home security system, keep your information from your smart doorbell. Well, Judge Smith, it's been great having you here on Miranda Warnings to talk about all these uh, very uh, interesting and I think uh, very compelling issues. Uh, We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music book or movie where you can share something lighthearted, something related to this, or something that just means something to you? Well, uh, when I was in high school and college, I did a lot of musical theater. And one of the things that I enjoy doing with my staff is coming into New York and and going to a a Broadway show. Uh, We saw My Fair Lady. Um, we are going to see West Side Story mm. uh, I- after the first of the year. And that's the kind of thing I really enjoy doing. And, and I think it's a, it improves the relationship with my staff for us to share that kind of experience. Oh, that's really nice. That's great. I saw the revival of West Side Story. Maybe, maybe it was 10 years back. Uh, here uh, and now they're doing it again, and it was tremendous. It's a tremendous, uh, a tremendous play. I remember playing it for my kids. The movie for my kids. They had there was something for everyone. Yeah. You know, there was singing and dancing and knife fights, and it had everything. Yes. So that's great. That's good for you, and uh, I'm sure your 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 staff appreciates it. So Judge Smith, thank you very much for appearing on Miranda Warnings. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.